Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the gathering, Lord, the hearing, the proclamation of your word. In worship, Lord, our hearts have been prepared for you. You walk before us today and we think of the things that we've said. Great is your name, Jesus. Lord, that you are the one that fills us up. You're the one that satisfies us. And as we heard from your word, we, we hear that belief in you leads to life everlasting. You raise us up in the last day. God, you are so good to us, sending your son to us, and we receive the grace that we did not earn, that is in Jesus. Renew us today, we pray, and by your word, fill us with your spirit that we may see it fresh, the same truths that we come to know, that we believe that it would come alive again in us. Renew us in your word today pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, how is your summer going so much church? So far so good. I love the summer. Summertime for me, I especially love the summer on Sundays because usually, you know, as a pastor, I take a break from the normal sermon series during the year. I like to go slow through the scriptures. Some people like that, some people don't. Um, but in the summer we take a break to sort of discover other topics and kind of look at other things that the scripture says that are 
you know, outside of the regular teaching schedule for me. So this summer, being here with you uh, on Sundays has been so wonderful because we've had the benefit of being blessed by multiple witnesses and pastoral leadership and people who've come up and shared God's word from different perspectives. And it's been all good. Amen? Yes. And also, I just wanted to say too, like, you guys eat well. I just love that we share meals. That's an appropriate metaphor as well. We actually sang about that earlier too, and it was in the catechism. Last Sunday, the brunch after service, you know what was so unique and, and, and wonderful about it for me was there was a dynamic in the room as we met in the hall that was like family. You know, the church is supposed to break bread and have all things in common and be like family. And that spirit was in the room, and it was just a blessing for me. I didn't even have to say it. I could have been a fly on the wall. I'd been like, this is awesome. Uh, this is certainly where Jesus is. He's, he's with family, and uh, even among the bantering that you guys kind of dish out to each other, you kind of dish and take, I love it. It's all good. This is a great place to be, so much church. One of the things that is a, a kind of conviction of mine as a pastor is if I serve the church on Sundays, I love, if we're working with a theme or the Spirit has led us to a certain book to read, that there's some integration with everything, that, that our themes, the things that we're studying kind of all work together. So, for example, maybe there's something you heard in a worship song, or maybe there's a conversation that you'll have after church with someone, or maybe there's something that the Spirit leads you to through the lesson or through the reading of his word that you recall later in the week, and it all integrates together, and you remember it later in the week right when you needed it. Like, that's my goal, is that we work all the things and make kind of cohesive and integrated what God is doing through the entirety of our expression here in the gathering. So that it's not just about the gathering, but itself contained here on Sunday, but it spills into our week so we can recall it later, right when you need it. So as Paul said, today's sort of the last Sunday as we've been looking at this theme, the fullness of God. And that's been the summer theme. And so for me today, it was like thinking about that theme and thinking also about what we've been reading in the Heidelberg Catechism together about the Lord's Supper and, and what's expressed there. And and, you know, sharing the meal and all the, the presence of God, you know, that's his fullness. Today I want to just simply talk about this truth. The fullness of God is Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to kind of walk away with and remember. The fullness of God is expressed in Jesus Christ. Now what Callie read from the Gospel of John, I think, is such a great illustration of this truth you know, out of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the Gospel of John is a book that teaches us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the fullness of God. The theme of John's Gospel is to show you this one is from heaven. He's of God. He is God. He's the fullness of God. That's what I want us to remember. So, bear with me. I love biblical theology. I like to see the patterns of the Scripture. I like to, to see how the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation works together to show us who God is. So I'm going to do a little bit of that today, talking about the patterns that we see in the Bible. But as we look at John chapter 6, I want to just talk about our context here for today. We read up earlier in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, what we find is that Jesus has been, he's doing his earthly ministry now in the area of Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. And he's by the Sea of Galilee. He's near a town called Tiberias, which is on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is a picture that I took on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee about three years ago when we visited Israel, and this was just such a spoiling view from the place that we stayed. 
The Sea of Galilee is a wonderful backdrop for ministry. This was a sunrise over the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias. You can still go there today. Sea of Galilee being this place about seven miles wide, the, the, the sea is, and uh, 15 miles long, something like that. Um, and so here's Jesus. He's on the, the, shores, the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. And what we read in those verses is that there's this crowd of people, 5,000, that come to him. This area was an important place for his ministry. This is likely where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And the crowds that come, they're hungry. So we read of this powerful miracle that Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplies it so that all the crowd is able to eat. And it actually says in verse 12, it says that they eat until they had eaten their fill. Like that language, you talk about fullness. Well, they were full. Jesus had fed them. And so you can imagine as they now have full bellies, they're, they're enamored with Jesus and they want to take him by force and install him as their king. And so Jesus, as in normal pattern of fashion, he evades them and he does this regularly where he escapes the crowds in the ministry and goes off on his own to pray and to be alone with God the Father. He sends his disciples on ahead of him you know, at nighttime, it's been a long day of ministry, but he sends them on ahead of him. He tells them to get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee over to the other side to a little town called Capernaum and that he would join them. So we fast forward to verse 22 where we read this morning and what we find is that the crowds the next day, they become alerted and they recognize Jesus is not here, but we saw that there's no extra boat that left. His disciples left and he didn't get in the boat with them. Where is he? And so they engage this sort of like highly motivated and vigorous search. They want to chase after Jesus. They want to go find him. Where did he go? And so we know that they're so highly motivated to go that they get in a boat. They get in boats and they are rowing around to go find Jesus. That's, that sounds highly motivated. Don't you agree? I mean, if you ever see me on a rowing machine know that I'm being hyper-disciplined because it's not my favorite thing, rowing. You know, my in-laws, they live in Montana. They have beautiful lakes there, beautiful scenery, just like here. And, you know, they love to take the kayaks out and, and go rowing. And you know what? It's not, it, uh, kayaks are cool. How many of you guys like kayaks? I don't want to trash talk those of you who love kayaks. It's awesome. But the rowing part, you know, the treading water part, that's not really my favorite element of the kayaking. It's, it's actually the vantage of seeing the beautiful sights you can't normally get to. So when we go to Montana on the kayak, I'm like, where's the island in that lake so I can go float over, row over there and go sunbathe by myself, you know, where there's no one else going to be over there. Anyway, the point is, it took a bit of labor for these people in this crowd to search for Jesus. They were rowing after him. They were chasing after him. Why were they seeking Jesus? It's an important question. And that's a question that I actually want to kind of turn on to ourselves. I want us to ask this question of ourselves. Their humanity is like our humanity. We chase and follow after Jesus as well. Why? Why do you seek Jesus in your life? It's a great devotional question. Maybe you spend time with the Lord on this week. Why do you seek Jesus in your life? Now, there are certain expectations that we have of God. We seek God so that we might be better people. We seek God so that we might have wisdom for how to live life. We seek God to have security 
And overall, we seek God so that we might have the things that we need to thrive, to live. These are all good things. It's good to want these things. We seek God for the work of his hands. And the work of his hands is always a good thing. Amen? The work of God's hands is always a good thing. But if we're honest, I know when I sit with this question, why do I seek after Jesus? Sometimes we don't seek even just the hands of God. We're seeking because we just want the satisfaction of having a full belly. And I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to bring that idea of the full belly up a few times this morning, so I'm going to come back to it. So after rowing across the sea, and then they find Jesus, Jesus calls out their motivation. This is what he does. He, he knows them inside and out. You can't put things past Jesus. He's aware of you. Why? Because he is God. So he just calls them out on their motivation for why they're coming after him. He says to them, he's pretty direct, truly, truly, by the way, whenever you see this in the Gospel of John, truly, truly, uh, what follows is a declaration of truth. It's something that you must pay attention to. Pay attention, listen up, truly, truly. The word there in Greek is amen, amen. This is true, listen. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, our human, what he's saying is our human tendency is to seek after the satisfaction of a full belly rather than seeking after the one who gave us the meal. That's our human tendency. We crave to be full. I like that feeling, don't you? I talk a lot about eating. <laughs> you guys know I'm being real on that. You know, I thought about this growing up. I never paid attention to my mom making meals. I never paid attention to the hands working to make me a meal. I do remember, though, when I was satisfied that I had food in front of me, and hopefully it was good. You know, my dad sometimes would poke fun at my mom in jest and say, what are we having tonight? Hamburger Helper, you know. Remember Hamburger Helper? Do they still make that? Anyway, I digress. The point here is that I never really paid attention to the activity of, of, from the one who gave, us, gave me the meal. Our kids, before we pray in our meals, we love to share the the prayer work before the meal, the, the, the praying conversation, and our kids will take turns praying. And I've noticed that, I don't remember training this, probably this was Jolene that did this, I don't know where it came from, but they, they uh, pray, please bless the hands that prepared this meal. Boy, I, I don't even think to pray that sometimes, but here they are praying about that. And um, that's appropriate. It's a, an acknowledgement that this meal was given to you by someone. You know, it, you didn't just pop up. <laughs> And um, they get money after this because I was told anytime a pastor uses his kids in an analogy in a sermon that you have to pay your kids. So you don't do it. Not at your house? <laughs> well, just keep it low. 25 cents? Uh, a dollar? A dollar. Oh, donuts. Donuts afterwards on me. All right, guys. We, t- we tend to seek the satisfaction of a full belly rather than seeking after the one who gave us the meal. Our own society's concept of the American dream sort of captures this same sentiment. It illustrates that we crave fullness. One of the first who codified the idea of the American dream was a historian by the name of James James Truslow Adams. And in his 1931 book, The Epic of America, he wrote that the American dream is a dream in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone 
with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. And that's interesting. Basically saying you work, you work with the opportunity and you should have the best life that you want. I would say that this way of defining the American dream, though this was penned in 1931, this is still very much alive and well today. We will pursue anything that will help us to work, to live, and to to realize our fullest capacities. Those things that we pursue could be employment, a good job. It could be material possessions. It could be a relationship. It could be governments. You know, we'll, we'll move and live in places that give us more opportunity, that don't strain us with taxes. Am I preaching to the choir here on that? We'll follow leaders that realize, help us realize our full potential. We, we search after our own power, our own authority. We like our own personal reputation to be high. These are the things that we, we chase after. It's not a new dream. This is the American dream. We can even chase after God for sometimes the same things. This is connected to our human tendencies, and it dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden when there was paradise lost. Garden, the Garden of Eden was as God intended. His presence, his fullness was with us. They didn't lack for anything, but once sin unfortunately entered into the world, humanity was, was exiled from the Garden. And we've been trying to recover it ever since through our own pursuits, chasing after what's going to make our bellies full. It's not a new dream. America today, we have similarities that we share in our humanity, even with ancient societies like the Roman Empire. The Roman poet Juvenal, his name is Juvenal, not Juvenile, Juvenal, he wrote, the people anxiously hope for two things, bread and circuses. Now, when he says circus, you want to imagine in your mind's eye, we're not thinking of elephants and clowns. Um, you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, right? You know the circus is a type of racetrack, and it's, a, it's a, like a, a huge stadium where they would have chariot races, and they would also stage civic kinds of presentations for entertainment. What Juvenal is saying here is that if you give people free food and entertainment, they will love you. You will earn their loyalty. That's the price for loyalty, bread and entertainment, free of charge. And he wasn't half wrong, by the way. I love ancient Roman history. If you visit any prominent ruins from the ancient Roman world, if you go to any town that was a prominent town in the ancient Roman Empire, you will inadvertently find somewhere an amphitheater. Those places were built intentionally to help bolster the Roman Empire because they would host free gatherings where they would throw bread out to the crowds. How's that sound? Especially if you know that Anderson's making the bread. Like, throw some of that free bread. I mean, that's good bread. Sorry, Anderson, I couldn't resist. He makes awesome bread. But that's what the government, that's what the citizens were looking for. Bread and entertainment. And if a leader did not deliver on that, means he's not taking care of you, you also should watch out. There's this, uh, this story in 8051 when the Emperor Claudius had to flee for his life from the Roman Forum, which was like the downtown, the civic center of the Roman city. He had to flee for his life because a riot broke out. The people were so angry at him because there was a food shortage, and they were starving. And so we're told that they, were, they took crusty, stale old bread, and they were throwing it and pelting it at the emperor. I love that symbolism. You don't take care of us. You're just throwing crusty, salty bread at us. We're going to throw it right back at you. He had to flee for his life. 
the human tendency is to follow God when our, for a full belly. And if we look at the crowds that were chasing after Jesus, they loved the outcome of Jesus' work. They loved that he fed them, that they were full. They ate their fill of bread. And so they wanted to make him their king. But their pursuit of Jesus was only for something earthly. It was only for something physical. It was limited. It wasn't complete. It wasn't full as they perceived it to be with the comfort that you feel with a full stomach. They were only following God for their physical gain, not for their spiritual status before him in his kingdom. Again, the human tendency is to seek after the satisfaction of a full belly rather than seeking after the one who gave us the meal. It's easy for us to love God and to serve God when you have a full belly, isn't it? It's easy to follow God when things are going your way. Historical precedent is now showing us this, that we will give anything power when it gives us bread. But this kind of devotion, this kind of following, this kind of love, if you want to even call it that, is conditional. It's works-based. And it can change based on your circumstances. Within a couple of years, these crowds that were chasing after Jesus would be crowds that would say things like, crucify him. He's not the one that we had been expecting or searching for. And while we read those, those, the, those stories of Jesus' suffering and how he was mistreated, we think, oh, I would never do that. What was their problem? Didn't they see the bigger picture? I think the reality is, is that we're all tempted to be like them to some degree. When things don't go our way, in part, we might be tempted to think, what's going on, God? Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm struggling trusting you. I'm not as satisfied with you because I have a, my stomach is grumbling. Whatever that grumbling might be in your life. And maybe we even, when we suffer, might be tempted to walk away from the Lord. This kind of faith that I'm describing is one that is works-based. It is not based in the grace of God. And a works-based faith is one that says, I will work hard enough and then God will bless me with what I deserve. I will, I will work, I will gain those conditions, I will work, and, and God will bless me. I will, I will do good things, I'll be a good person. And I know we, we, we know here that our, our faith in following God is not about works, but still I think there's this latent perspective that kind of lurks underneath our viewpoint that say that if things are going well in my life and I'm blessed, that must mean because I'm doing something right for God. And I constantly feel the tension of that in my own life, but also as I, as I listen and try to be encouraging to other believers that we think that if we're blessed, it's because we're only doing good things for God and he's blessing us as a result. Now, I don't want to detract from making good decisions and living a, a, an upright life and, and being righteous that there are consequences that are good to that, absolutely, and health c- comes your way. But what about the person with an empty stomach who who, uh, you know, has, has totally a righteous life before God. I think of the story of Job, right? Was he blessed when he had nothing? By their standards, they would say no, but God still loved him and saw him. We should be aware of how easy it is to perpetuate a performance-based Christianity, this conditional kind of Christianity. God did not send Jesus to the world to create a bunch of performance-based Christians, we're all conditionally oriented and, and then unsatisfied and wanting more. 
wanting to gain whatever's going to uh, kind of move our agendas forward, good reputation, uh, wealth, whatever it might be. God sent his son to save us. And a faith based on grace and God's grace says that I can't work hard enough to be satisfied. I can never work hard enough to be satisfying before a holy God. But I will receive whatever the Lord has for me. And so back to John 6, and we look at the crew. I'm going to call them the crew. They were rowing, the crew. They worked so hard to find Jesus, and they were performance-based. Here we are. We came for our meal. (laughs) And so they asked Jesus two questions. They are a great example of performance-based followers. In verse 28, they ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Teach us. Tell us, what do we got to do? And then they also ask him personally in verse 30, they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform, Jesus? Uh, That's a lot of doing in those two verses. Do you catch that? How many times do you see the word do there in those verses? I counted five. Uh, it's, a lot of, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of doo-doo there. Uh, I'm sorry, you could see that coming, right? Uh, so sorry. They were fixated on doing. And they, they had the boldness. It's some gall to even ask Jesus, well, hey, what are you doing? Show us, validate yourself to us who you are before God. And I think that sometimes we might do that too. If we're honest with ourselves, that's why I would ask the question at the beginning, you know, why do you follow Jesus? Sometimes we might, in different ways, ask the same questions of God like this. What are you going to do for me, Lord? How are you going to act in my life, Lord? And there may not be necessarily anything wrong with those questions. But the motive is what we need to ask God. Is that a right motive? So Jesus responds in verse 32 to their questions. And he says this, again, truly, truly. So pay attention to what he says. Amen, amen. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Amen. Throughout their dialogue, Jesus continually says to the crowd that they, they, the work that they want to do is a work that God has already done for them. It's something that God gives. So when they're asking God or Jesus, when they say to him, what should we do and what do you do? Jesus changes the the conversation and says, God has already given a work for you. He's given you bread. And then he goes even a step further and and elevates the language to talk about himself and who he is. I'll get to that in a moment, but he, he he says something marvelous. But this whole notion that he picks up on with Moses Again, it harkens back to the patterns of the Bible and the stories that are speaking to us today even as tutors, as a witness to our humanity. So you you know the story of Moses, right? Uh, Think about the salvation story that is the Exodus. If you go to to the story, you, you see that the Israelites are there in Egypt. They're slaves. These are descendants of Abraham. They are people of promise. God had covenanted with them. He said, I'm gonna promise to give Abraham descendants and later land and I will be with you. I will be present with you. That's a restoration of Eden, that thing that we're chasing after. God is the one who's going to restore it. And so there they are in bondage, in slavery, and in foreign land. And God raises up Moses. 
and Moses leads them out, they are emancipated from their slavery into the, where did they go? The wilderness. Past Sinai, they went into the wilderness, into the desert. The promise was that they were going to have a land to dwell with God like an Eden, a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. That sounds amazing. But when they were emancipated, where did they end up? In the desert. Does that sound like it's flowing with milk and honey? The wilderness? I come from the desert. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It's not. You have to go find that stuff. Um, You go buy it at the grocery store. It doesn't just naturally flow. They were there for 40 years. And along the way, as they exited, you know, you remember the story. We have to tell these stories to each other to remind ourselves. You know the story. Their stomachs start grumbling. And they start grumbling and complaining to God. What gives, Lord? What gives? We had better bread in Egypt. We're hungry. So Moses, the mediator, he goes to God and and basically God listens to their complaining and blesses them with bread. (laughs) Manna from heaven, it's called. When they would wake up in the morning, the manna would be out like dew in the fields. And they would collect it. And, and we're told in Exodus 16 that it, it was white and flaky, like a wafer, and it tasted like honey. Interesting little seed there that God is trying to show them. Like, I gave you a promise. It's going to happen. But here's a little taste of honey. It's coming. Do you trust me? Did they earn that bread? Did they go and work for that bread? What did they do to earn it? God gave it to them. And so that's the sign that they're saying Moses was the one that worked that. They turned it around and said, Moses is the one who worked that with Jesus as they're talking to him. He, he made that happen. And Jesus saying, God gave the bread. That was a seed of the gospel to Israel. God gave them the bread. Now they kept wandering and they're in the desert and they were tempted. They kept grumbling a little bit, right? The original generation that came out of Egypt, they never saw the promised land. It was their descendants that saw it, Right? But they, they, they lasted there. And that idea, Moses in, in Exodus chapter 16 wanted there to be a remembrance for the manna, that they, that they would take a measure of the manna to remember that God supplied for them food in the, in the wilderness. Right? And that carried forward even into the temple era when they had the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, and on top of the bima seat of judgment, what did they have Or in, in, in the elements um, in front of the temple, what did they have? Bread. It's to remind them God provides. He provides for his people because he loves you. He covenants with you. And so Jesus had his own moments. Fast forward, right? Just before this, this earthly ministry as well. Jesus, before he started, he was led by the Spirit, we're told in Matthew chapter 4, where? Into the wilderness. He had his own moment in the wilderness. He was there for 40 days. And we know that he was tempted by the devil three times. What was the very first temptation in the desert, in the wilderness? Hunger. It had to do with his hunger. His humanity, a very, it's not a sin to be hungry. You know, God knows these needs. He was hungry. And the devil tempted him and said, oh, you can just turn that, we, I know who you are. Just turn that stone into bread. And Jesus responds with a psalm, or with Deuteronomy, a quotation from Deuteronomy. 
Man cannot live by bread alone, but by the, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, he doesn't take the bait. That's, a, that's our lives. We, we live and are nourished by the word of God, by who God is. And Jesus is the word, the fullness of God. Uh, after that, you know, he, he uh, starts his ministry, but he, we say this in, in, to, to kind of identify this about Jesus. He's impeccable. This is where he's different from us. He endured the temptations, but he did not sin. We need his life in ours. He overcame in the wilderness. And so fast forward now as he's, he's talking to these, these crowds who have followed him. Um, he, he tells them, don't work for food that goes stale. You know, man shall not live by bread alone but for food that endures to eternal life. And I love um, Pastor John's analogy of the rope last week, just that eternal perspective that we need to have. Jesus will give us eternal life because God has set his seal upon him. He is approved. He is impeccable. He is the son of God. He is approved. He's the only one who can give life eternal. And then he reveals this very marvelous thing, so powerful, verse 35. This is so powerful. This is like, the thing that we take away. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, I am the bread. You guys want that manna that disappears, but I am the bread. You will never be hungry again. And this is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We know the power of this this identification from Jesus, right? This also goes back to the Exodus. You see the consistency here. When Moses is raised up by God, and he's like, who are you, God? And God is going to use him as his leader to, to lead his people out of Egypt. God, God answers that question, who are you? What does he tell Moses? I am. He says, I am. That's how God identifies himself for the first time to Moses. I am. So here, seven times, Jesus in the Gospel of John makes reference in saying, I am. There's seven different things he says, I am. He's making reference that I'm God. And this first I am is, I'm the bread of life. By the way, seven is a biblical kind of number for perfection or completion, fullness, the fullness of God in sevens. Seven days, a complete week. Here, Jesus, I am. Seven times, he is perfect. He is the son of God. And here, I am the bread of life. We just heard earlier the the last one in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's That's the seventh I am. This I am is to complete us. These I am statements, and this one in particular, is that Jesus would be our sustenance for all things in life, physical and spiritual, that we trust him that everyone who beholds the Son, who sees him, will have eternal life, complete life, full life, regardless of their circumstances in the here and now. The internal perspective is we belong to him and we are alive and he will raise us up even if we die. I was talking to a friend this week about church-related things and the sentiment that my friend, who I've known for a long time, a couple decades now, is I'm aging is a little bit of disillusionment with the church. Just that it's discouraging to see the things that have developed out of churches. And agreed, in this day and age, 
we can easily find things to talk about critically as it pertains to the church because we're people looking for, for God. We're looking for transformation. And it's, it's not always clean work. It's messy. In the disillusionment that was communicated was this temptation of just like, mm, I don't really want to do anything more with that, right? Maybe at times we, we relate to that, like, oh, I just want to sleep in today. I'm not going to gather with the people because it's just, it's just sucking life out of me. It's not filling me up. You've never felt that. At times we go through that, right? And as we were talking in this conversation, we just both kind of the one thing we agreed to come back to was this. Yeah, but Jesus is good. You know, we see these things that may not be ideal, but the bread of life is good. He, he is for us. And people might have all these things to criticize about what's not perfect, but when you look at Jesus, he is completely satisfactory. He is perfect. We can't lose sight of Jesus. And that is one of the things that I was like, I, I know you've heard me say that before. I just keep coming back to that. Like we have to remember Jesus is the fullness of God and we are to seek his face. This is a great quote um, from John Piper. John Piper writes that seeking the Lord means seeking his presence, that he's with you. Presence is a common translation of the Hebrew word for face. Literally, then, we are to seek God's face. This is the Hebraic way of having access to God. To be before his face is to be in his presence. Well, you and I, we have the face of God. We have Jesus. We're to come before him and pay attention to him. This harkens me to the psalm. This was the psalm that came to my mind. Psalm 27, verse 8 says, When you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, I'm going to seek your hands. Lord, I'm going to seek your feet. We have follow after God for just his hands or just his feet. My heart said to you, I shall seek your face, Lord. Jesus is the face of God. And we can't lose sight of him. He is the bread of life that, that we take in. So today, are we seeking the the are we seeking God like those crowds did, laboring, rowing, searching for what he will do for us in advance to advance our own agendas? Or do we with open hands behold the face of God in Christ Jesus? Do we receive the gift that God has already delivered for us? And this is where the Heidelberg Catechism ties in. To think about us partaking in the Lord's Supper, you're getting a portion. That scripture was read this morning as our call to worship, that we have a portion of God in the cup and this is to help us. It's to tide us over, if you will, because there is a day coming where the fullness of God's presence will be realized. He's coming for us. So this is what encourages us while we wait. And, and we do it as often as we can to remember so that we don't walk away, so that we don't forsake the gathering. And because we need cleansing from our sinfulness, and he takes care of that. He removes the load of our sin from us. So really, this is about receiving the bread that God has given. And it's not that it's wrong to want the things that you need in your life. The, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, God knows what you need. He knows the things that you need, but seek first him. Seek for his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those things will be added unto you. And so when we do take communion again, when we do break bread together, it will be a proclamation of our hope 
the complete word, work of God, the fullness of Christ uh, that we ingest in us, that lives in us, and that portion tides us over until the end. Well, there will be no more questions about where is Jesus? Where is he? he will be, we'll, we will behold him. So if there's an emptiness in your lives, in, your, in our lives, Jesus is right here in front. Just behold him, believe him. He fills us up. The fullness of God brings a complete life. It brings to us rest. It brings to us satisfaction and truly the purpose that I think we're all built to have. I just want to pray to close with with, um, Psalm 27 and its words, just that we would um, hear them as kind of our pursuit of God. If you would bow with me and just listen to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Lord, we do thank you for your salvation. Jesus, who is the bread of life, and that we are sustained by him means that we have life eternal, that we have the fullness of God's presence in our lives. Sometimes, God, we can have full bellies, but our lives feel empty. And if that's us today, I just pray, God, that you refill us with true life only found in Jesus. He is the great I am. And so, God, we trust you, we behold you, We are just praying that you encourage us, you go before us and help us to to follow you and be transformed more into your likeness. Thank you, Lord, for our church and for this time of worship and hearing of your word and its encouragements to us today. In the name above every name we pray, Jesus Christ, amen.